I'm a big fan of three-day weekends. But uh, when we're on the uh, topic of President's Day, I thought that uh, we could discuss who our favorite presidents were. Let's start with you. Who's been your favorite president? Welcome to Power Politics, the Mishpacha podcast exploring the flashpoints of American and global current affairs and how they impact the Jewish community. I'm Benjamin Rose, Mishpacha's editor-at-large. And I'm Maury Litwack, a two-decade veteran of political campaigns at Capitol Hill. Join us weekly as we delve into these critical topics and more on Power Politics. In today's program, are consensus-minded conservatives extinct? Who is your favorite president? Maury and I will weigh in with our choices. We will also speak today with Congressman Mike Lawler, a freshman Republican from Rockland County, New York, who will explain, among other things, why politics is not a beanbag. So we'll get to exactly what he meant by that and why I want to ask him that shortly. But of course, we also have our weekly person of influence and our fearless forecast coming up. Maury, good morning. I understand you're in Florida today. Hi, good morning. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in beautiful Florida. I'm enjoying it as I have a flight to catch in a couple hours and I'll be back in, in frigid New York. So I'm missing both ends of it. All right, so we'll try to stay on schedule this morning so you can make the flight. <laughs> I have to thank you for uh, sending me this New York Times story on Chris Sununu. Chris Sununu is the governor of New Hampshire. He's a Republican. He's been mentioned as a possible presidential candidate in 2024. What I really liked about the story, Maury, is that I could see the New York Times shadowed him. They spent time with him probably a day or two, not on the campaign trail because he's not campaigning now, but they spent a day or two watching him, meeting with him, having lunch with him, going to a couple of appearances with him. It's great journalism. I I always loved that kind of work. I I remember doing it with David Greenfield when he was a New York City council member. I spent a day and a half with him and I sat in with him in council hearings and with all his meetings. So the New York Times did the same thing, and it was a great interview. One of the things that uh, struck me was one line in the story where it said that some national Republicans, and the reason why they said this is because Chris Sununu was considered one of the old-fashioned mainstream-type Republicans. So the Times writer said that some national Republicans suspect that Mr. Sununu is talking to an electorate that largely does not exist. And then they added that recent history finds little evidence that most Republicans are interested in a consensus-minded conservative. What do you say about that? I have two thoughts. Number one is we had Matt Lewis on the program and I can't get this 35% that he mentioned out of my head, which is the fact that Trump has 35% and it's sort of hard to operate around it. And I think anybody, even the the newest person to politics is going to look at uh, Sununu and say, well, where is he going to sort of carve up his uh, electoral map? The second thing is, is that it reminds me of this almost desperate attempt to carve out a new party or within a party. You know, Teddy Roosevelt did this with Bull Moose Party, where he felt the Republican Party had left him. So he almost created a new party. But my favorite example of this is Eisenhower. After he won his second election, he won it by an overwhelming margin, but he lost Congress, which was the first in many years. And he used to jot down notes while he was doing meetings in the cabinet about a modern Republican Party that he would have wanted to create. And at the top of the list was Nixon, who he thought would be great for the modern Republican Party, which we know is quite a joke. But this idea um, and concept of a more mainstream, more moderate party, whether it's on the right or left, is very common and has been talked about for decades. Uh, Practically speaking, is this what the electorate wants? I don't see that being really available within that. So I'm not sure exactly what the angle is other than, than that narrative of sort of a maverick individual, whether that's something now Romney's doing or something that McCain previously did. I'm not sure where you see that actually translating at the polls. My feeling, Maury, is that people do want a more mainstream candidate. 
And to an extent, this has been the whole struggle within the Republican Party ever since Donald Trump came on the scene and announced his candidacy in 2015. Do you want a fighter? Do you want someone disruptive? Which, uh, according to Matt Lewis last week, at least 35% of the party does, maybe even more. Or do you want someone from, let's say, the Mitt Romney wing? Or do you want a a Reagan-type conservative who they used to call the great communicator? I think there's room for those kind of candidates. And uh, I've written about this on several occasions, and I'll say it again today, that I want to see vigorous competition in the Republican primaries in 2024. I don't want to see them conceding the race to Donald Trump. I don't want it to become a two-person race between Trump and DeSantis, because then it turns into a a heavyweight fight. I'd like to see as many candidates as possible. And uh, the more candidates we see, then the more likely it is that we'll have a, a wider choice and maybe even someone from that old mainstream Republican wing can knock off uh, Trump and to an extent DeSantis, who also I think is from the disruptive uh, wing of the party. I think it's too early to tell. We still don't even have a Biden re-election announcement, so I don't know. They're good stories, fascinating to watch, but I challenge people to find that sort of modern um, Republican who's won a, a uh, election for president in some time. People typically modulate a little bit in the generals, but I'm not sure when we last time we saw one of those. It's been a very long time. Right. Romney might have been a mainstream candidate, but he certainly didn't win. Now that we're on the topic of presidents, uh, today, the day that we're recording is February 22nd, which uh, in my day was George Washington's birthday. And these are in the days that uh, we had two uh, holidays in February. One was Lincoln's birthday on February 12th, and the other was George Washington's birthday on February 22nd. And then uh, what officials decided to do was, let's say, let's combine both of them together and make it into a national holiday and make it on a Monday every year, third Monday in February and give everyone a three-day weekend, which I also applaud. I'm a big fan of three-day weekends. But uh, when we're on the uh, topic of President's Day, I thought that uh, we could discuss who our favorite presidents were. Let's start with you. Who's been your favorite president? First off, I strongly encourage people to uh, read presidential biographies, learn about presidents. There's so many interesting presidents and what they went through, whether it's Garfield's one year and his valiant struggle to stay alive, or it's Polk and basically claiming massive amounts of territory across America. There's a lot of interesting presidents that people don't read about. And so that being said, I'm giving that caveat because I am going to go with someone who's traditionally is picked as one of the most popular presidents, which is Lincoln. And I'm not going to go with Lincoln because of the fact that his Gettysburg Address is one of the most well-quoted, well-known speeches ever given, or for the fact that he won the Civil War and kept America united. But I think it's just character, and character means a lot these days. And it's something that we can look towards. And uh, my favorite story of Lincoln is when Lincoln was at the start of the Civil War, he would call upon General McClellan. And at one point, he went with his aide, John Hay, and the Secretary of State to visit General McClellan. General McClellan wasn't home. And after about an hour or so of waiting, General McClellan came in through a side door, went upstairs to bed. His aide came to him and said, well, the president and the Secretary of State are, and essentially his chief of staff are waiting for you downstairs. And McClellan basically said, I'm going to ignore them and be done. Now, imagine a situation where you ignore the president of the United States, the secretary of state, and just keep them waiting. What would your reaction be if you were president or if you even saw that and witnessed it? And John Hay, his aide, was very upset about it. And Lincoln responded, quote, it's not a time to get upset. Better at this time, quote, not to be making points of etiquette and personal dignity. And I think that's extremely uh, important to just see that character and learn from it. So my pick is Lincoln. Maury, that makes me uh, almost wish that I was living in those times to see what Abe Lincoln was really like. I think you made some good points here. I'm going to pick LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson. 
Now, I was seven years old when LBJ became president, and uh, that was after the Kennedy assassination. And yes, I do remember where I was and when I heard that Kennedy was assassinated. In those days, I think uh, every Orthodox Jew in America was a liberal Democrat, and that meant something uh, much different than it means today. Why LBJ? He championed the civil rights legislation of 1964, and that was very important. I had an aunt and uncle who lived in Atlanta. We went down to visit them when I was six years old in 1962. I saw the the blatant uh, discrimination against blacks, uh, signs up on uh, restaurants and diners and restrooms at gas stations that uh, they didn't serve uh, in those days, uh, you know, the signs, they didn't use the term blacks or African-Americans, but uh, basically it was nasty stuff. LBJ uh, got rid of that. Maybe a hundred years later, uh, Lincoln tried uh, to emancipate the slaves, but the civil rights legislation of 1964, then the Voter Rights Act of 1965, and uh, LBJ said that, you know, we're going to give away the South to the Republicans for decades because of the added right to vote. But he still did it anyway, even though he was a Democrat. So it showed that he really put the good of the nation above politics. And people talk about uh, Medicare now. And I guess a lot of the topic is, can they possibly make some cuts in Medicare uh, because the budget's gotten so big? But LBJ was the one who basically uh, gave us Medicare. It was his program that he pushed. And there's millions and millions of Americans who basically benefit from uh, health care under Medicare that they wouldn't have had without LBJ. And add one other thing from uh, the Israel point of view. Dennis Ross once said that Lyndon Johnson was the most emotionally committed president to Israel of any American president. He noted that as Senate Majority Leader, which was before he became president, that LBJ tried to persuade President Eisenhower to avoid imposing sanctions on Israel for not pulling out of the Sinai. That was in 1956. Uh, He was also the first president to give Israel offensive weapon systems, uh, despite opposition from the State Department. And uh, even though LBJ could have done more in the build-up to the 1967 Six-Day War, you have to look at it, uh, from heaven, that maybe had LBJ intervened and uh, tried to stop Egypt's naval blockade of Israel, uh, there might not have been a war and no Israeli victory, and the map would look a lot different today. And one other thing I'll add, which I have to be careful uh, how I talk about, because we're only supposed to uh, speak in terms of Israel's nuclear capability, and nothing more than that. We actually still have a military censor here in Israel. But in the 1950s, uh, when Israel was a new state, so Shimon Peres was working very closely with the French on uh, getting nuclear capability for Israel. Kennedy basically was keeping his eyes on this, and he was very concerned because of the Cuban Missile Crisis. He was afraid of nuclear proliferation. But LBJ looked the other way when he took office, and uh, basically uh, that's when Israel finished up whatever they did in Demona at their nuclear plant there. Again, we can't be specific about that, but uh, uh, the fact that Israel has deterrent power that makes other nations fear it is basically a credit to uh, LBJ, who, as the expression goes in the Gomorrah, shave al tasa He basically sat, he didn't do anything, and he let Israel uh, go ahead and do what they were going to do. We're thrilled to welcome our next guest, who I knew when he was an assembly member in New York, who's now a congressman for the 17th District, which includes Hudson Valley, and many parts of Rockland County and many parts of the Frum community. Uh, He serves on the Foreign Affairs Committee. He is a uh, outspoken fighter for New York. We wanted to get him on early because of his, not just his his leadership on a number of issues important to the community. Congressman, can we start there? Your relationship with the Orthodox Jewish community goes back many years, actually. I've had a very good uh, relationship with members of the community and not just the leadership, but rank and file 
residents within the Rockin County Orthodox community. I'm one of the few people uh, that actually have an Orthodox member of my staff, you know, and I think that's important anytime you're doing constituent service work to be able to ensure that your staff is reflective of the community that you're serving. And and I think that's been important, but certainly I've been an outspoken and staunch uh, supporter of Israel. I uh, believe very firmly in school choice and the right of parents to educate their children as they see fit and certainly uh, spoken out against anti-Semitism. And certainly we've seen an unfortunate rise in that uh, across the country in recent years. Your election was definitely close and was one, I hate using the word upset because when people win, they feel like it wasn't an upset. They had a plan to win. So don't call it an upset. What do you think really drove turnout? Well, I think a big part of it was redistricting. We got a fair set of maps in New York that uh, made these districts competitive, uh, number one. Uh, Number two, you know, this was the first time in our nation's history that Democrats controlled everything in Washington, Albany, and New York City at the same time. And they had created a mess, the 40-year record high on inflation, surging crime, skyrocketing energy prices, a poor southern border with not only a massive inflow of illegal immigration, but drugs pouring into our communities and killing Americans. And then international crises that we were dealing with, you know, from obviously the Russian invasion into Ukraine and China. You know, I think voters across the district wanted to restore balance and common sense at every level of government and really ensure that uh, their voices were heard. And then finally, and I think this was most important, I lived in the district. I was from the district. You know, Sean Maloney only represented a quarter of the 17th congressional district in the new map that was drawn. And I represented about 20% of it in the state assembly. And so he didn't have that built-in advantage of incumbency. And I was traveling around the district doing six, seven, eight events a day while he was gallivanting across the globe in his uh, role as DCCC chair. And so I think people saw that. They appreciated how hard we worked. And in the end, obviously, we won. Congressman, even without the burning issues that were bothering people that you mentioned, you do have a good track record at uh, drawing Democratic votes in the district that you're in, even though you're a Republican. Now, that's going to be very important going forward nationally. So my question to you is, what can you take from your experience and give over to other Republicans who will need Democratic votes in order to uh, win public office? You know, when you run for office in New York, obviously it's, uh, you know, a Democratic state. There's a large Democratic enrollment advantages. My congressional district has 70,000 more Democrats than Republicans. And the way that I have approached campaigning, uh, but also governing, is to focus in on the issues that, frankly, cut across party lines. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you know, people are focused on a few basic issues. People want a good paying job to provide for their families, a quality education for their children, access to housing and health care, and they want to live in safe neighborhoods. And, you know, that was the message that we carried forward in every community, every district that we went to. And I didn't shy away from going to areas, uh, you know, where maybe Republicans haven't fared as well in past elections. You have to build support across the district. And and this district, 19% of the district is Latino. Obviously, it has a large Jewish community, also has a large Irish community and a large Haitian community. 
and so what I have done is not only reach out to folks in every community, but go and talk about the issues. And again, one of the things that I did as a member of the assembly and have done now as a member of Congress is make sure that my staff is reflective of the communities in which we are serving. And so I have a Haitian Creole speaking staffer. I have an Orthodox Yiddish speaking staffer. I have a a Latino staffer. And so we're continuing to make sure that we are responding to the needs of the communities in which you serve. And I think that's critical for any Republican who is, is seeking to win elected office. You have to reach out. You have to ask people for their vote. You have to talk to them about the issues. Uh, that matter to their families. As a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, I'm sure you're following that uh, the Biden administration recently has been putting some pressure on Israel to supply Ukraine with arms. I'm wondering how you feel about that and whether you think that's an appropriate request, especially considering the fact that uh, Israel needs to step very carefully when it comes to Russia because of the uh, military needs that we have in Syria, which is Russian controlled. Yeah, look, I think obviously there's always challenges anytime you're dealing with international issues. And the situation in Ukraine is serious. It's one that, you know, frankly requires uh, the United States and our allies to work together to combat. Because if Vladimir Putin is successful in uh, his endeavors here, it's not going to end with Ukraine. Other former Soviet satellite countries will be in jeopardy including Moldova, for instance, where my wife is from. And so I I think there are serious challenges here. I think, obviously, you know, the United States is is supplying a lot of weaponry. Our allies in Europe are supplying a lot of aid and support. And I think, you know, collectively, we need to work together. Obviously, uh, Israel has its own challenges that it needs to be cognizant of. And we certainly are in the United States. Uh, Israel is our greatest ally. And we need to continue to work together to ensure their safety and security in the region. But I think all of us collectively have a bit of an obligation here to make sure that Vladimir Putin is not successful in seizing full control of, of Ukraine. You gave a very fiery speech, I think it was about a month ago, on education, on school choice, on uh, the needs of parents. Can you talk to us about that as both a parent and as someone who understands this issue in the community? And um, I don't know if you can channel that passion, but it was very passionate. It was very, it was, it was all over the WhatsApps. Everyone was sending around. Congressman Lawler was uh, speaking out on this issue. Well, I think it's something that I've strongly believed for a very long time, that parents, not bureaucrats, have the right to have a say in their children's education. And I think that starts with school choice. I'm a product of public schools. I believe we have great public schools uh, here in in New York and certainly across the 17th Congressional District, but they're not without their own challenges. And I think a lot of private schools, parochial schools, yeshivas, uh, they provide a a very quality education to children uh, throughout the district and throughout our state. And so I think for me, I've always believed parents have that right. Uh, to send their children to a school of their choosing. I do believe in uh, religious education. Uh, I went to a Catholic college, Manhattan College, uh, you know, as a practicing Catholic. You know, I think it's important uh, to have that religious foundation. And so, you know, I think a lot of the criticism of yeshivas has been unfounded and a lot of it uh, very broad brush. As I've said before and, and say again, if there is an a school where they're not 
adhering to the law or they're not following, you know, what they're supposed to be doing, then you deal with that, whether it's a public school or a private school. Uh, but to make a broad brush statement as the New York Times did, or as some of my colleagues have about yeshiva education, I think is very unfortunate. Substantial equivalency does not mean exactly the same curriculum. Substantial equivalency is talking about outcomes. And I would uh, submit that, you know, most people who have a yeshiva education do very well and are, are very productive and contributing members of our society and, and the community writ large. So I think, you know, we need to focus in on how we ensure uh, that every child, regardless of what school they attend, uh, whether it's a public school, a private school, a charter school, a vocational school, that they are getting the education needed to put them on a career path to success and to be contributing members of our society. And I think that uh, should always be the goal and the focus of education. And, you know, obviously we should not have a one size fits all approach to it. It doesn't work if that's the objective. As a freshman congressman, I'd like to know what you've seen so far in Washington in the six weeks that you've been there that uh, maybe uh, was unexpected or that you didn't anticipate. Well, you know, I, I think uh, having been around this a very long time, you know, I got started working for John McCain as an intern when I was in college. Uh, I was executive director of the state Republican Party in New York. I, I've served in local government, uh, both as an advisor and as an appointed official. And then certainly serving in the state legislature, you know, I think I've been relatively well prepared. So not too much shocks me or surprises me in government and politics. But I think, you know, certainly, uh, obviously, uh, our first week, we dealt with the historic speaker's vote uh, that took 15 ballots. You know, I think that was certainly a, a little bit surprising. But, you know, when you take a step back, that's democracy. People are elected. You have a, an exchange of ideas. And ultimately, something is going to move forward. And, and I felt it was important to support Kevin McCarthy. I think he's the right person for the job. And I think he's doing a great job as speaker. And I'm glad that we were able to build the consensus needed to get him over the finish line there. Are you still seeing aftershocks from this or is this water under the bridge at this point? No, I think right now it's water under the bridge. I'm sure there's going to be other issues that pop up over time. That's uh, again, that's that's democracy. I, I mean, we don't live in a dictatorship. We don't live with a despot or one size fits all approach to governing. And I think part of our problems today in our society, frankly, is there's a lot of groupthink and there's not that free, robust exchange of ideas in the public square. And if you offer an opinion counter to, you know, maybe what is quote unquote the mainstream, you know, you are immediately cast aside and adjectives are ascribed to you. And I think that's part of what is wrong with our democracy right now and, and our society. You can't engage in a robust debate. And frankly, that's what's needed as we work through so many of the challenges that we're dealing with. And we need a lot less groupthink and a lot more free exchange of ideas. And, you know, who knows, you may actually learn something if you listen to somebody other than yourself. You have an expression that I've seen you quoted saying that politics isn't beanbags. Can you explain what that means to me? <laughs> yeah, it's a famous quote going back many years. Politics ain't beanbag. You know, beanbags don't really hurt, uh, but politics can be rough and tumble. And, and I think we saw that obviously with the speaker vote. 
You know, I've seen that over the years and, you know, certainly in New York. But you look at this and you got to have a thick skin. You got to try to ignore the negativity and the, the attacks and focus in on, on the job at hand and, and do what you think is right for the right reasons and, and on behalf of the people who elected you to serve. I just want to ask you about anti-Semitism and your fight against it and some of the work you've done on that. Can you give us a little insight into uh, some of the things you've been working on and why? Well, we've certainly seen a, a rapid rise in anti-Semitic hate crimes. And, you know, there's a recent study that showed that 99% of them are not prosecuted. And so I think it's incumbent upon all of us as elected officials and frankly, as members of the community to call out anti-Semitism or racism or bigotry of any kind when it occurs. And we need to take uh, measures to fight back against it, to ensure that people who engage in it are appropriately called out for it. You know, and, and we've seen, uh, for instance, uh, in Congress, members who support the BDS movement, members who are against the state of Israel, members who have engaged in anti-Semitism. And one such member, Ilhan Omar, we pushed to remove her from committee, uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee, because frankly, she does not belong on that committee representing the foreign policy views of the United States. When you're on a committee like that, uh, you have to be more sober and measured in your words because our allies around the world, our enemies around the world are listening and believe, you know, that you are speaking on behalf of the United States government. And so I think, you know, there's a lot more that we need to do. And certainly I think where these uh, hate crimes occur, they should be prosecuted. But I'm proud of the work that we have done to push back, to stand up in the state assembly. I fought to pass a bill uh, that was being blocked by the chairman of the education committee that would require the state education department to conduct a study and ensure that the Holocaust is being taught and taught appropriately uh, with appropriate materials in our schools. And, you know, I think if we're going to combat anti-Semitism, it starts with education. And so uh, that was something that was important to me. We were able to get that passed. The governor signed it into law last year. And that was that was certainly an important step in New York State. Congressman, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Maury, my takeaway of the uh, Congressman Mike Lawler interview is that when he was talking about uh, the people on his staff, he mentioned that he has someone from the Haitian community and someone from the Orthodox Jewish community. What I appreciated that he was saying is that uh, he has them because they're good for his constituents and it helps him work with his constituents. It's not being inclusive for inclusion's sake, but it's being inclusive because that's what's right and that's what's smart and that's what works for the district that he represents. Yeah, I, I love that as well. Actually, I, I was that was going to be my takeaway, Benjamin. So I guess I'll have a second one, which is that I, I think it's always heartening to our listeners to hear a parent talk about education and the way he talks about it. I think that that's going to be a continuing, a rising issue. So to hear a freshman congressman talk about it and at the front end, in the middle, uh, about why he got elected and what he's fighting for, uh, I just think is great, especially considering the extraordinarily large uh, yeshiva population in his district. We're ready now for our Influencer of the Week, and mine this week is actually a posthumous award. It goes to uh, Nohemi Gonzalez, a 25-year-old American who was studying uh, overseas in Paris when she was killed in an ISIS attack in 2015. 
So her family now has taken a case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which was heard this week, saying that Google, which owns YouTube, violated the Anti-Terrorism Act, basically by uh, aiding and abetting terrorism, by recommending ISIS videos to users through its algorithms, thereby aiding ISIS's recruitment, and that's what contributed to her death. The case, uh, again, was heard uh, this past week in the U.S. Supreme Court. They didn't seem too inclined to rule in favor, I don't think, of uh, this particular uh, petition. However, we know that hate speech and uh, these type of algorithms on the internet and with the big tech companies is something that Congress is dealing with. And there's a 27-year-old federal law out there that uh, shields social media companies from liability for content published by others, in this case ISIS. But uh, it looks to me like there's going to have to be some changes in that law. And uh, if Congress does it instead of the Supreme Court, all the better. But uh, Nohemi Gonzalez is my influencer of the week. So mine is uh, seem, may seem traditional, but it's also going to feed into my failures forecast. I think it's President Biden this week, which I don't believe I've done that yet. He traveled to Ukraine. He put the issue on the front page of every newspaper around the world. He recommitted American aid to Ukraine from a geopolitical perspective. It's gigantic from the perspective of obviously Ukraine. It's, it's gigantic. Teddy Roosevelt always talked about uh, the bully pulpit. And I mean, this is someone using the bully pulpit and it working tremendously. For me, it's President Biden this week. I almost picked that one uh, uh, myself, but I'm glad that you did. I didn't have as much time today traveling as you did. So I appreciate you giving me the easier one. You did all the deep dive on the other one. I think the fact that he picked himself up from behind uh, the desk in the Oval Office and went out to uh, trouble spots in the world uh, speaks well for uh, American influence in the world. And, and that's to me also what feeds into my fearless forecast, which is and you're not going to love this one, Benjamin, because it, it sort of negates you, one of your previous fearless forecasts, which is that I just, I'm thinking about when the president's going to announce re-election, and I can't imagine it happening now before the summertime. So I'm making a real fearless forecast. All the conventional wisdom, going back to my co-host here, is, is that it's imminent. And I think the reason why it's going to take a while is when you look at his visit to Ukraine and how he's being perceived, and you look at his polling host the uh, State of the Union, it went up. Politically, what is the advantage for him right now of announcing? Everything he's doing is being perceived through a presidential lens. And when he announces, it's going to be perceived through a campaign lens. And obviously, there's always a little bit of that anyway. But my fierce forecast is I don't think he announces till the summertime. I think we're months away from this. There's just no advantage. There's nothing like the power of the incumbency. You're right. He really doesn't have to announce early. My fearless forecast this week, and uh, I'm not happy uh, to say this, but we're already seeing it already. Uh, Israel and the U.S. are headed for the worst diplomatic crisis between them since the George H.W. Bush, James Baker era. We see it uh, almost every day now, especially with uh, the U.S. weighing in on a consistent basis on uh, Israel's judicial reforms. We see it in uh, Tom Nidus uh, uh, making statements all the time about uh, the settlements. We see it in uh, the Biden administration basically uh, blacklisting Betzal Smotrich, who's the uh, finance minister of Israel. Now, while Israel is uh, giving a lot of pushback, it's only going to get worse before it gets better. And uh, we're going to see it swell over the next month. You are listening to Power Politics, unpacking the power players shaping our world, a Mishpacha podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Leave us a rating and share with your friends. Have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a guest to suggest? We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line on Twitter at The Mishpacha or at mishpacha.com forward slash power politics. This episode was produced by Jag in Detroit Podcasts with sound design by Cedar Media Studios. See you next week.